Welcome to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Oh, he's one of my idols and I can't wait for this show to start. Oh, hang on, it just did. This is Food Bites with Sarah Patterson. Hello, Sarah Patterson. Hello, Kevin. Philip Aloysius, Eugene Hilly. I can't tell you how excited I was when uh, we landed Greg Chappell for this podcast. I can't tell you how excited I was. <laughs> one of my boyhood heroes, uh, well, not mm. boyhood, one of my, you know, I was a grown-up man when he was playing cricket for Australia. Uh, I just think one of the greatest cricketers uh, this country's ever produced. I think he's a gem. Absolute superstar and I must admit, uh, before we spoke to Greg, I was a little bit in awe of his uh, his like his monumental backstory and bio. I mean, what an incredible career! Yep. And I wasn't quite sure what we were in for, but I must say I was pleasantly surprised by yeah. the result. I had a lot to do with him over the years in terms of through the media, and he, I actually used to buy all the cricket equipment for my club in Brisbane from the Greg mm-hmm. Chapel Cricket Centre, which was run by Trevor Holmes, and Greg would occasionally uh, be there as well. So, uh, and obviously Queensland cricket and, and my uh, role in the media mm. up there. Uh, ran into him a fair bit. So, no, he's a, he's a really personable human being who over the years, because of the underarm thing and a lot mm. of other things that have happened, has been painted uh, as being a very stern, austere mm, kind of person. serious, yeah, yes. Yeah, but he's not actually. He's, he's, a, he's got a wicked sense of humour, as you will find out in this interview. And you are going to be blown away if you didn't realise that uh, Greg Chappell, well, I mean, we'll, we'll detail this in the show, but his, uh, his current diet, and for quite mm. a while he has been an avid follower of uh, what he calls pure vegetarian, which is vegan eating. Yep. So Greg's coming up. Uh, He's our guest on this edition of the podcast. Looking forward to it. And our food poll this week, (laughs) cheeses. Yeah, not speaking of vegan. Cheeses. We're going, yeah, the baby cheeses. (laughs) Well, the big two. It's, uh, you know, the stinky old uh, blue cheese (laughs) up against the creamy camembert. uh, If you can't feel what's going on with my facial uh, expression. Uh, We know where you sit on your cheese. uh, I can't eat anything with mould on it. Mm. I can, I love it. Yeah, I know love you a do. good bit of mould. And I see people eat it and I go and they and they just rave about its oh, creaminess it's so good and the texture you. and all those things. Mm. I just cannot bring myself mm. to eat it. Well, and I think the result of this poll will surprise you. I think it will. But before all that, mm. our special guest, Gregory Stephen Chappell. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Greg Chappell, thank you so much for joining us on the Food Bites podcast. Firstly, how are you keeping these days? Yeah, pretty good, Sarah. Thank you very much. Uh, nice to be uh, with you, but uh, going well down uh, back in Adelaide. I've sort of completed the circle. Um, we moved back to Adelaide, uh, middle of 2022. Our youngest son and his wife are here with their two young boys, so uh, we thought it would be nice to spend some time with the younger grandkids now as we've had the last 10 years with the older ones in Brisbane. Greg, um, a lot of people may not be aware, I mean we know you so well for your cricketing prowess, but a lot of people might not be aware that you are one of the more appropriate guests we've had on this uh, (laughs) show. Uh, Given that you and your wife Judy, I believe, um, follow a plant-based diet and have, have done so since your retirement from the game. Yeah, even earlier than that. Sarah, although you know, we've had um, we've had periods where we've gone back to to real food, as some people would would call it. But um, my journey started probably when I was playing cricket. I suffered during my early years with a lot of upper respiratory infections and uh, ear infections and so on. And it was towards the end of my cricket career, I was having a problem uh, with a neck injury that I'd received playing baseball many years before, actually. 
And I went to a, a new therapist. I was introduced to this, this guy. I went to see him and um, had to fill in my sort of health form and uh, health history. And he sort of had a look at that. And he said, righto, let's, um, let's have a look at your neck and then we'll talk to you about your diet. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you don't reckon you got all this by accident, do you? And that was sort of the, the, the start of it. And he gave me a whole lot of um, material to read. Um, the one that I found most interesting was a report, a study on the University of um, UCLA, um, University College of Los Angeles, their track team. Um, they studied them on and off dairy products. And the short and long of it was that off dairy products, they were twice as aerobically fit as they were on dairy products. And I thought, you beauty, for half the training, I can be as fit as I am now. So um, being, uh, some would say, lazy, uh, I, I've always said I'm efficient, you know, and, and particularly the era in which we played. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money in cricket, so we had to have a real job while we were playing cricket so it was difficult for me to find extra time to do the the extra training so um, I thought well for 30 days I'll give it a go and see if there's any difference and within less than a week we had our first fitness test uh, which the 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 main part of the fitness test was a, a 15 minute run how far you could run in 15 minutes and I'd been in the sort of lower half of the of the pack as far as results in in those uh, sessions and I went straight to the top of the the pack and had I known I was going to feel so good I would have probably done better than I I did but usually when I started uh, running I I got the stitch I used to get pain in the in the thighs and so I was waiting for the stitch to kick in and the pain to start and it never happened and so I was able to finish the, the run off pretty well so that was the first um, experience that I had with diet and, you know, what you eat being such an important thing. And, and what I've learned since then is that what we put in our mouth is the most important thing we do in our life pretty much. It sounds like it was a, a classic light bulb moment back then. I, I notice, though, Greg, that you don't refer to it as a vegan diet. You call it pure vegetarian. Why, why do you make that distinction? Well, I think people have a, you know, they have an image of what vegan is and, and it's not a particularly positive vision. Most people um, think of the vegan diet as, you know, pretty much a bunch of nutcakes and um, and whilst I am a nutcake, I don't <laughs> like to be referred to as, as a nutcake. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that people just have the wrong connotation of what a vegan diet is and, and what it's all about. Pure plant-based um, gives uh, you know a slightly better impression. I mean, basically, there's there's no animal product in it. But having you know, I was a pure vegetarian for for 13 years. Uh, I've been vegetarian probably for 30 odd years. But I have had periods where I've gone back to eating meat and so on. And I can't say that the results have been overly positive um, when when I've done that. And whether it's a familial thing, cholesterol is certainly an issue for me and in certainly our mother had very high cholesterol most of her life. When I'm on a plant-based diet, cholesterol is not a problem. So something tells me that there is a correlation. What sort of a cook are you, Greg? 
pretty ordinary, Kev. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love eating it. Cooking it, you know, is not the problem. I need a sous chef. You know, I need someone who prepares it all for me, ready for the cooking. It's getting it ready for the cooking that just I, I find the more tedious. And and friends that do love cooking, male friends particularly that do love cooking, they love all that because they they love the sort of meditative sort of experience of chopping up all the the food and preparing it for cooking. But for me, that's just, that's not efficient enough. I want to get ready and go. And uh, so probably patience isn't my strong suit. (laughs) Any particular meals or cuisine that uh, that are your favourite? No, pretty um, eclectic in that that sense, although I do do like curries. you know, I lived in India for a while, and thankfully I loved curries long before I went to India. But I probably the southern Indian curries probably suit me better. They're a little bit cleaner, a um, lot of oil and so on in in the northern Indian cooking. Probably Thai cooking is some somewhere closer. Um, uh, Sri Lankan cooking is somewhere between India and Thailand. I mean, figuratively as well as uh, really. Um, but the cleaner taste, the um, coconut oil and, and so on, the, some, of the, some of the heavier curries in the north of India probably just were a bit too heavy for me. And one of the things that I've, I've learned through my journey is that it's what you cook with is, is really important and the um, vegetable oils aren't necessarily the good oils. Oh, okay. You've got a well-travelled palate, haven't you? I mean, you, you've uh, tested it out all over the world. Yeah, I have. Um, you know, I went went to England as a young young fellow. You know, I was nineteen the first year I went off to play county cricket in in England, and I, I've got to say that I wasn't very eclectic then. Um, you know, I sort of had a pretty narrow uh, upbringing on food. Mum, you know, mum was a solid cook, but um, you know, wasn't overly adventurous, and so we pretty much had fairly plain fare through, throughout. Um, so then when I went to England, uh, the first year I was in Somerset, I was living in a little pub in, in the middle of Taunton and over the road was an Indian restaurant that, you know, I used to get a visit probably two or three times a week down the road with the steak, um, steak place and then there was a fish place. So I'd sort of rotate between those three and I, I sort of gradually started to expand my, my taste a little bit. But... Um, you know, the the English fare wasn't so so great, but there were people from all over the world that had come to England. So you had your Indian restaurants, you know, you had not so much the Thai restaurants and things at that stage, but they they came later. Chinese, obviously, was available everywhere. Um, but when we were growing up, I, I imagine in memory, fish and chips was probably about the only takeaway food that we had. Yeah. Yep, wrapped uh, up in the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You, you catch up with last week's news and, and have a meal. It was great. That's what we say. Yesterday's news, tomorrow's chip yeah, paper. Give or you something a great like that. <laughs> gave us a great perspective of how seriously to take uh, some of the newspaper stuff that we read. Uh, I'm glad you said that, Kevin. <laughs> Greg, um, to say that you have had. An incredible uh, sporting, a cricket career would be an understatement. You, you look back over your bio, and there are just so many milestones and uh, records. It's hard, hard to count them all. But over the duration of your career, are, are there moments or highlights, some that stand out to you more than others? I think it's places and people that um, you know. The, the cricket was 
fantastic. I mean, it was, uh, you know, to just to be lucky enough to follow your dream and to be able to play cricket um, pretty much full time, even though it wasn't really a living in those days, I was able to sort of make it work and um, get to travel the world and visit places that I'd heard about when I was a kid listening to cricket on the radio, which was the only option in the day. And I think the the amazing thing was when listening to the cricket on the radio, each ground, each country seemed to have a an air of you know their own that came across the radio waves. Each ground seemed to you know have its own personality and the really good thing was that when I got to visit those grounds and play on them later on that's exactly the way they were which is a great credit to the commentators who painted word pictures obviously of of these places but the sounds that came over the radio for instance you know the Melbourne cricket ground when I was a kid one of the strongest memories I have is the sound of the trains in the background Uh and and when you played at the MCG you could hear the train going past the, the outside of the M- MCG. So, and, you know, whatever ground it was, whatever part of the world, there was something unique to that particular ground. And that had come across the radio waves all those years later. So there was no ground that disappointed me when when I visited them. So they're the memories, the, you know, the, the wins and losses, the, uh, the friendships, the good times and the bad times probably are more of more of the memories than individual performances. You know, at the time you made runs or you took wickets or you took catches or whatever you did was part of the game and it's basically what you were there for. It's what you were supposed to do. So I, I always found making runs was a bit of an anticlimax because that's what you were supposed to do. You were expected to make some runs. And when, when you made 100, sure, there was some exhilaration attached to it, but it was more or less, oh, I've dodged a bullet there. And <laughs> that, that sort of, that gives me a bit of breathing space for a little bit longer. But really it was about the people, not only those that you played with and against, but the people that you were lucky enough to meet, the places that you were lucky enough to go, that maybe a regular tourist wouldn't get that opportunity. For instance, you know, the Khyber Pass in Pakistan go to the, the Khyber Pass to be hosted by the Khyber Rifles, um, which are based up in the, you know, the top of the Khyber Pass there, and to look down into Afghanistan and to, to do things like that to, you know, in Zimbabwe to go to the remote parts of, you know, Zimbabwe to go to um, some of the wildlife sanctuaries in Zim and South Africa and places like that, whilst you know, regular tourists get those opportunities. I think we probably got some special treatment sometimes. Did you enjoy your cricket career as much as we did uh, watching you? Yeah, I did. You know, I think you sort of hear stories about, uh, oh, you should have stopped and smelled the roses. And I think whilst there was a fair bit of angst around performance, um, I think I did get a lot of satisfaction and a lot of enjoyment out of it. And Again, it's it's the fun little things that happened along the the way, the the humour of uh, teammates, you know, the personalities of teammates that showed through in in different times. I mean, everyone's heard of Doug, the Doug Walter stories, and sadly, they're they're all true. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, he uh, but he was such a personality, and you know, lighten could lighten sort of the atmosphere when things got a bit tough. Jeff Thompson, great personality. Dennis Lilly, um, 
a different sort of personality driven, the strongest, most strong-willed individual I think I ever played with or against. Um, but, you know, being able to share those moments with uh, with those people um, was was terrific and, and I did enjoy it. Um, you know, it, uh, I don't know whether I'd do it again. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. I think when you look back on it, you realise that, Jesus, that was hard work. You know, I mean, you, <laughs> uh, and I think that in the end is what sort of stops you. You, you look around. I remember when Ian retired, the first time before World Series cricket, he was only twenty nine or thirty, I think. And I said, "Mate, you're mad. I mean, you got years of cricket in front of you." And he just said, "Mate, you won't need anyone to tell you. When the time comes, you'll know." And he was exactly right. I was at the Adelaide Oval. We've been in the field for a while, and I love fielding. And you know, the two hour sessions, and we've been out on. It was a pretty warm day at the Adelaide Oval, and I'm thinking, "Geez, it must be." getting close to lunch, and I look up, we've been in the field for half an hour. <laughs> and I thought, oh, gross, I've got another hour and a half to go. So then I, I knew that um, it was past that enjoyable stage, and I didn't want to play the game if it was hard work. Um, you know, I just uh, I enjoyed it. Sure, it was hard work, but it was good fun, and the challenge uh, of the contest was what made the good players good players, I think, was that they loved the contest and they loved competing against the best that the opposition could could throw up. But when you got past that, I reckon it became hard work. Greg, you uh, you had a huge profile. You all did. Ian, all of you, and especially during the World Series cricket days, uh, you were considered superstars. In, in what ways did that uh, impact your life off-field? Yeah, it was interesting because it was like and dark, you know, before World Series cricket, you know, the, the cricket board's idea of promotion was to put two teams on the field and hope people turned up. And all of a sudden, Kerry turned it into something quite a bit different and come on, Aussie, come on, you know, the promotion of the game. Colour television made the difference, you know. Had Kerry come along, World Series cricket wouldn't have worked in black and white. Um, the timing of colour television coming in, that was was the difference, and you know, changing um, the you know camera angles, putting in more cameras, cameras at both ends. All of a sudden, whereas people have been watching on the ABC, and it looked like you were looking through the wrong end of a dirty telescope um, <laughs> to to watch the cricket. So people didn't really know it that that well, and all of a sudden, we were on colour television exploding into into people's lounge rooms and there, you know, we were in, uh, you know, <laughs> better, for better or worse, there we were in people's lounge room and all of a sudden they got to know us a little bit better and, you know, they recognised us down the street, um, people, you know, all of a sudden. And I think particularly the one-day game, day-night cricket and the one-day game, coloured clothing, really attracted a new Generation and it attracted a lot of women to the to the sport, so it just changed the whole dynamic. And um, I, I think we, we have three adult children now, but they weren't adult children then. You know, two boys and a girl in the middle. And Belinda was probably the one that struggled the most to understand it all. Um, just couldn't understand why I had to be away so much and why when we walked down the street or we were at a restaurant that people wanted to come and interrupt our family time. Mm. And I think that whilst I sort of accepted as, as accepted it as part of my job, 
the family hadn't taken it on as part of their job. And I think that, um, you know, probably was most noticeable with, with Belinda and, and just things like when I went away, you know, like living in Brisbane, we would play the Brisbane test at the end of November and I would be away then until the end of February. Now, the family came down to Sydney for a fair bit of it and so I got to see them and I got home for a night here and a night there. But Belinda found it really hard to to deal with and her way of dealing with it was just pretend I didn't exist. So when I left, she was the last one. I had to go and find her to say goodbye, whereas the boys were sort of, you know, would be running with me to the car and doing things like that. And, And as soon as I arrived, they'd come running out into the driveway but again, I had to go and find Belinda because her way of dealing with my comings and goings was just to pretend I didn't exist. And oh. that was tough on her and tough on me as well. Oh, um, and it took probably until she was an adult for us to really come to grips with, with all of that and, and to, you know, for her to realise that not only did she suffer, but, you know, I, I also missed out on, on a lot of her life and the life of uh, her brothers and Therefore, Judy's done an enormous job um, bringing up three kids pretty much on her own for the first uh, 10 years of uh, certainly Stephen's life. And certainly that's changed uh, in the way that, uh, that uh, you know, families now literally go on tour with the, with the, with the team. Are you, uh, are you for that or again that? Yeah, it has its pluses and its minuses, Kev. I think, you know, uh, just logistically and, and emotionally, you know, one thing about – you know, Stephen, our eldest son, was four and a half months old before I met him. You know, I, I was in England when he was born, um, so I didn't come home until four and a half months later. And whereas now they, you know, they come home for the birth of, of children and all that sort of thing. And to be fair, I'd have been better had I come home for a week and at least, you know, got to meet him, spent some time with him. Um, and then go back because the the end of that cricket tour in 1975 was the year um, was the day Stephen was born. I was emotionally not there for the rest of that that tour, and you know I was probably in as good a form of my life up until that point. Yeah. But really, I I just wanted to get home. Yeah, uh, makes perfect sense. What what uh, what? Ask you uh, a great article you wrote recently uh, where you talked uh, with uh, with Michael Holding and Andy Robertson. And yeah. their feelings and your feelings about the future of Test cricket. Are we in trouble, uh, the the Test cricket lovers of the world? Yeah, sadly, Kevin. I think it's those of us over a certain age probably um, have a have a strong feeling about Test cricket. I'm not so sure that those under forty could really care that much. Um, I think that's that's one thing. Uh, but yes, we are. I think. Uh, in trouble. There's so much T20 cricket being played around the world. There won't be less of it. There'll be more. Um, and for the for the poorer countries, they just can't pay enough to keep players involved in in their Test cricket program. And you know those players go off to T20 leagues because that's where they can make some money. And you know, for for most people, it's a it's a pretty short career, and they've got to make the most of it. So. I don't blame the players at all, you know, but I think the administrators missed the trick some years ago, you know, when, when it was obvious that the West Indies were sliding backwards and that money was their biggest issue because there is no economy in, in the Caribbean islands, really. Since sugar has, has gone, by the way, um, 
you know, there, a couple of the islands do well with tourism. Trinidad does okay with shale oil and so on. But for most of the smaller islands, there is absolutely, there is no work. Mm-hmm. There is no future for, for the young people in a lot of those countries. So many of them have gone off to the US, you know, going, when I talk um, probably 70s and 80s, a lot of the people from the Caribbean islands could see the writing on the wall and, and they were economic refugees. They went to the US for jobs. So I think that, that's been a huge problem, you know, for the Sri Lankas and even Bangladesh. They've got a huge population, but they don't produce many fast bowlers. So it's really hard to compete in test cricket unless you produce fast bowlers. Uh, and for a lot of the countries, you know, I've I worked for, with Cricket Australia for the last 10 years of my working life and I know how much money we spent on developing players including our domestic cricket and most countries can't afford that and therefore they're not competitive over a five-day test match yeah. you know Pakistan had a lot of talent and probably could have won that Melbourne test match had they taken some key catches but you know they can compete for two or three days or you know one or two test matches but over three or five series, then they're not going to compete. And, you know, the current West Indian team is a very talented team, but they have no experienced players. Their best players are playing somewhere around the world in a T20 competition. Yeah, it's a pity. Greg, just like uh, we have classic catches, this is a classic question without notice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you could have a dinner party and you could invite anybody you wanted, dead or alive, who would be at your table? Oh, um, well, I suppose the, the obvious answer is have family there first and foremost because our family is spread all over the countryside, um, siblings and, and children. So that would be my first choice. But uh, of all the, the people that I've met over the, the years, um, and I've been very fortunate to have met a lot of you know well-known people and, and most of them have been terrific, but the ones that are the most interesting I've, I've found are the c- comedians. Because um, not only are they they're quite funny, many of them are manic. I mean, they're they're not actually very happy people, but they are funny people and they're great observers. And um, you know, I think I'd have a room full of people like George Carlin, uh, Robin Williams, John Cleese comes <laughs> comes to mind. And I went to a show in at the Enmore Theatre many years ago. I took our youngest son, who was then about. 15 and 14 or 15, to see Stephen Wright from the US. Yeah. I mean, he, he was the champion of the one-liner. I'd love to have someone like Stephen Wright sitting next to Robin Williams. <laughs> you know, Robin Williams, who never shut up, and, and Stevie Wright, who said very little, but um, much of it was very funny. I mean, one of the opening lines that I remember from the Enmore Theatre was that his theory, Stephen Wright's theory of evolution was that Darwin was adopted. <laughs> um, I mean that that really tickled tickled my my fancy. But you know, I, I got to see um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore live at the Hammersmith Theatre years ago in in London, and seriously funny. Very, um, I mean, Peter Cook was obviously manic and and perhaps um, you know not the happiest person alive, but he was a genius as far as uh, comedy and timing was concerned. One of the fellows that I met. Um, through my, my cricket career was Ronnie Barker. Oh. You know, I loved the two Ronnies, oh, yeah. and I, I knew Ronnie Corbett as well. Ronnie Corbett was was just, was a comedian, and I mean, he regurgitated every 
line that he'd ever ever spoken just in, in normal conversation. He was trying to be funny at all times and generally was. But I met Ronnie Barker when the two two Ronnies were in Sydney. Kerry had them in Sydney for a, a period doing the two Ronnies for Channel 9. And Ronnie was the most – Ronnie Barker was the most normal person that I reckon I'd ever met. Wow. And, and talking to people who knew him well – I mean, he was an actor first. Not a not a comic, but he, he had perfect comic comic timing. And I remember some of those skits in in the two Ronnies where um, he you know he had, just had to remember this monologue, and, and they reckon he was the king of the one take. Yeah, he he was just so so good at it. And and I, the same with George Carlin. I mean, he used to write these one hour specials, you know, one hour gigs that he did. And he would stand up there and regurgitate it all. I mean, it was one thing to write it, but to remember it and then to be able to deliver it in, in a way that was um, yeah, it w- was so funny. I mean, his irreverence. He, he was a stand-up philosopher, George Carlin, I reckon. Yes, and, and, yes. and people who haven't heard of him should go, mind you, the warning has got to go up that um, <laughs> he, he could offend. <laughs> but... Uh, some of his observations about, you know, politics and ad- if you want to see a funny skit, his skit about advertising, and again, the warning about some of the language um, is there, but it is just brilliant. And um, so I, I'd like a room full of those guys. Oh, it's I'd be, wonderful. I'd be there with I you. I love it. I'd be there with you. A very similar comedic uh, taste, uh, Greg. Uh, and, <laughs> and Kerry Packer would have to be hovering over the top of that room, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he certainly wouldn't be sitting in the background. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Greg, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, mate. Uh, continued good health and happiness to you. And thanks so much for being on our program. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Kevin. Thanks, Sarah. Thank thanks, you, Greg. Greg. Thanks, guys. That was um, terrific, mate. Good, good fun. Thank you. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Ah, wow. lovely to hear from you. A little insight into some of the family mm. moments there. And, he was very and, candid, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that story mm, before. About, about Belinda. The, yeah, about the effect it had on his, uh, particularly mm. on his daughter, but on, on his family and on himself. It was quite heartbreaking listening yeah. to that. It must have been dreadful. And I would never have thought, in all the interviews I've done with Greg, never talked about who he finds funny, but almost <laughs> identical to who I find funny. Oh, when he talked about the two Ronnies, oh, I just yeah. I remember my dad used to roar with laughter. I yeah. believe it was on a Friday night in my childhood. And, oh, I loved uh, them. Absolutely loved them. What a lovely insight too, particularly into Ronnie Barker. Yes, yes, fabulous stuff. Thank you, Greg, for your time. Mm, thank you. Really appreciate it. Ah. Uh, let's get to the food. <laughs> Jesus. So Greg's been talking about dairy, yeah. so we decided we're yeah. just going to dip our toe back so into the dairy. We thought the first half of the show, no dairy. This part yeah. of the show is all dairy. Full on dairy. It is cheese against cheese. It is the blue cheese up against the camembert. Stephen Raitman, wonderful Stephen, will start us off. Now he says, it really depends on what else is being served and is there wine. Good point. For wine and cheese, preference is camembert. As part of a messy platter though, blue cheese fits nicely, so I'm happy either way. Jimmy Wilson's the opposite. Pass on both, thank you. Hard cheese only for me. Oh, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Nick Coe. Pretty solid life hack to steer clear of eating anything with mould on it. That's Kevin's philosophy too. Vote one, Nick Coe. Uh, Terry Daniel says camembert for me out of these two. Mm, it's got to be a nice camembert too. There's oh, some yeah. dodgy ones. Oh. Candace White from Channel 10 says, well, why can't we have both? Steve Bastoni says blue. There you go. 
Oh, the wonderful old croaky. He says, our sense of smell plays a key role in detecting spoiled food Mm. with an unpleasant odour warning us to avoid. No amount of wine will have me switch my vote from camembert. Good thought. Anne Peacock says, give me happy cow, the light version, Every day. I've seen the Happy Cow. Happy Cow's the, the vegan supermarket. cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I don't know that it is. I think mm. it is. I looked it up. We need to check. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I stand corrected. Because <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Oh, and when I was putting the poll together, I thought, I better check what the Happy Cow is. I don't know Do what Ann, Ann Peacock could be, you know, smoking mm. something or whatever. Dr. Joe Gara, if you don't mind, he says he likes blue cheese. Very good. Cherie says blue cheese helps to clear oh, the sinuses. I'll bet it does. Well, if the doc didn't say it helps to clear the sinuses, what would Cherie know? Like, seriously. Dr. Dodson. Yeah, Dr. Venus Bay. David Burt. Camo, most are palatable. I recall the 90s when deep fried camembert was on the menu. Oh, do you remember that, Kevin, with the, um, like a cranberry jam or something they served it with? Blue Vein needs to be a quality Gippsland number before I will go anywhere near it. Sue Landry Mm. says, camembert. (laughs) Muriel Cooper says, oh, Sarah. Why do you make me choose? (laughs) I adore them both. Camembert for every day, blue cheese for special occasions. Lisa Marie says, uh, I like my penicillin in a tablet or an injection, not in cheese form. Yes. Camembert for the win. Vote one. Lisa Marie, she's on a ticket with Nick Coe. A great radio man in Laurie Atlas Uh, says he likes blue cheese. Rebecca Ann Kane, our vegan, our resident vegan, says neither. They're both gross. She might prefer the happy cow cheese. Exactly. There you go. (laughs) Glenn Robber. Robber. (laughs) Robber. Do you want to mumble that for us again? <laughs> You're just breaking. This is one, a great line that a comic used is. He's just breaking those lips in for an idiot. No, no, Glenn Rodder says, Camembert for me, Pato. I love the creamy taste. Stephen Tuzel says, mm. it's a really good creamy blue for me oh. every time. I love a Camembert too inside a phyllo oh. pastry case with chicken or fruit paste. Oh, oh, oh. Or as David Burt earlier reminded us in the food poll, deep fried. Ah. So many choices, so Sarah. True, Stephen. Stop calling me Sarah. <laughs> Lydia says blue cheese. Julie says camembert. Sue Hosking says camembert for me, affectionately named Teller Sponge Cheese from my banking days. Oh, I'm fascinated by that. No, no, I, no, it took me a minute to think about it too. Think back to when you stood in the now back in the days yeah. when you went to the bank. You stood in the bank. You handed over, say, when I used to take the uh-huh. money for dad from the service station. Oh, the sponge! The little thing in the bowl <laughs> in front of them that they put their fingers on, which was wet, so as they could count the. Can I just say now you've taken me back to my dad's days yes. managing the Commonwealth knew, Bank in Currumbarra. I'm very would... familiar with the round. Normally, normally blue or yellow, and it looked like it looked like a bad cheese. Great memory, Sue, and she says that did put me off trying it for a few years. And I can imagine that because those teller things with the thing, they were the worst. Hygiene at at its best. And now, when you think about that, did they have their own or did they share? Oh, they were shared. Oh, were they? Oh. Share the love. Joe says uh, the blue stuff. Thanks. Least it's uh says camembert. But I have been slowly taking on the blue. Oh, good for you, Lee. Take one for the team. Oh. Davin says, love them both, but I would have to say 
blue cheese. On your Devon. And the blue gets 25% of the vote. Mm. The Camembert gets 49%. Wow. Both gets 21 <laughs> and neither gets 5 I love how people still mix up their options and say, no, I'm not going to choose. Yeah, on a two-party um, preferred <laughs> basis, we've got four. But we didn't get any other options, thankfully, apart no. from someone who said they only prefer hard cheese, which was Jim Wilson. Based on last but week's... we didn't get any Edam or Gouda or... <laughs> but based on last week's, I expected to have a poll at the end that had 25 oh. cheeses on it. Uh, thank goodness we didn't. Mm. Uh, thanks for being part of our Food Pilots Up every Friday on all our social media platforms yep. and we love your contribution. We really do. <laughs> Very funny stuff. Uh, uh, the image of the bloody teller thing yeah. will be in my head now for yeah, the... For the and yeah. when, I go to, when I open the fridge and look at the cheese, I'll go, no, Me I won't too. have any cheese today. Me no, too. It's teller, teller sponge oh, cheese. I love how these polls evoke a bit that, of nostalgia. But that's a beautiful way to describe a really bad cheese too. Mm. What, what do you think of that cheese, Kev? Oh, it's teller sponge, don't you think? <laughs> That's something yeah. new. So thank you uh, for that, uh, Sue. And thank you, Greg Chappell. Uh, yes. Terrific to have mm. him on the program. Great, uh, great chat. Uh, and we have some terrific guests coming up. In oh. fact, in the, next, in the next episode, Tony Bonner. Mm. You may remember him. Yes, from Skippy as... The helicopter, helicopter pilot, pilot. Yeah. Jerry King, and, but uh, he did so much more apart yeah, from he that. Did. He did. Very fine actor and a terrific bloke. And we've had a, a very interesting chat with and him. And it is Tony Bonner AM, yes, by the is. way. Absolutely. He should be very proud of that, uh, as he is. Uh, <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll catch him uh, next time. Yep. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to Food Bites. Check out our Facebook page for recipes, tips and all the latest news. That's Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier.